Welcome to the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I'm Kyla Daw, and I'm glad you decided to join us on today's episode of the show that is shaping how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent. Rather than advice from experts, our listeners want to hear the insights and ideas from those who, just like them, are on the front lines every day, building meaningful relationships that translate into meaningful support for causes that they and their donors care about. Every week, we invite our guests to have a real conversation about what it means to be a fundraising professional. We're after a greater understanding of what it means to be one of the sector's critically important yet least understood roles, while giving honest answers to our profession's most difficult questions. Thank you for joining us in this episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. Here's your host, author, fundraiser, and master trainer, Jason Lewis. Hi, podcast listeners. My name is Jason Lewis, and I am your host for the Fundraising Talent Podcast. Before I introduce today's guest, I do want to thank our sponsor, QBAC. There's a big difference between a solution that measures a fundraiser's performance and a solution that helps a fundraiser perform. QBAC helps fundraisers to excel at their most critical task, developing deep, meaningful relationships with donors and cultivating them into lifelong givers. Give your fundraisers a better qualified portfolio, one that considers more than just capacity and simple scoring. Your fundraisers will also get insights into the hearts, minds, and connections of their donors. Fundraisers have a tough job. Help them close bigger gifts in less time by going to www.qback.com to schedule a free demo. Podcast listeners, the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow is finally back on the schedule. We have several dates confirmed. Since 2014, our team has been providing high-quality one-day roadshows in partnership with nonprofit leaders who want to showcase their space and provide thought-provoking and highly interactive fundraising training in their nonprofit community. Our roadshows have been described by our guest as hands-down the best professional development experience that they have ever been a part of. This experience has been described as challenging assumptions with conversation-inspiring content and new ways of thinking. If you would like to register for one of the upcoming stops on the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow, just visit the link in the show notes. Hi, Stephanie. I am delighted that you're my guest today on the Fundraising Talent Podcast. Um, we have never been in the room together. We know each other on social media. A lot of us have been uh, convening and having conversations on social media and on LinkedIn in particular, and that's where you and I connected um, we just figured out that there's about 75 miles between the two of us. Um, so perhaps we'll, uh, perhaps we will soon enough. I remember before the pandemic, I was routinely meeting people, um, who were in the district, uh, you know, at a diner in Bethesda or something. Um, so perhaps we can share that, uh, that cup of coffee in person at some time in the future. But nonetheless, we're going to have this conversation today. Um, Stephanie, how about before we get started? Uh, you just introduce yourself to our listeners. Sure. Thank you so much for having me, Jason. I'm looking forward to today's conversation. Um, I'm Stephanie Schwartz. As you said, I live in Washington, D.C. I lead a fundraising consulting firm called Little Bean Group, and I work with a wide array of clients, organizations, schools, um, colleges, universities, all types of nonprofits to help them improve their fundraising. I absolutely love building relationships with clients and working with them to help them uh, raise more money sustainably. It's really a passion of mine. 
Okay, so last week I was in Austin and uh, I did some collaboration with a group called the Big Squid Group. And she was on the Catherine was on the podcast here with me a couple of weeks ago, and she told me the story behind the Big Squid Group. And now I've got the little gr- I've got a little bean. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you're gonna have to uh, what's a, what's the what's the story behind the little bean? Sure. So I was trying to think when I launched my company, I was trying to think of a name that had a tree or growth or something that would get at the nurturing aspect of fundraising and the way in which we build relationships with people and cultivate them and big ideas come out of that and bean popped in my head. Um, Little beans. So you have a little bean and you tend to it and big things come out of it. Oh, I love that. Like, I like an acorn. Uh, yeah, yes, that, 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 and I love that analogy. That's great. So, Stephanie, we, uh, we invite our guests to come on here. Anybody who's a regular listener knows that we invite our guests to come on here with a big idea, bold opinion. As long as it's aimed at fundraising, um, we can go any direction we want to. Um, and usually I don't. And this is certainly the case today. Usually I have no idea the direction that we're going to go, which usually makes for a, um, Great conversation that keeps me on my toes. Uh, the more I know, one of the things I've learned, Stephanie, and some of my listeners probably have figured this out as well as some of my guests, the more I know about the subject ahead of time, the more I end up t- t- tending to dominate the conversation. So <laughs> by by you, uh, by me not knowing where we're going to go allows you to really uh, get your uh, get your two cents in there without me overwhelming the the conversation. What do you got for us today? All right. So I'll put this out there, which is that Uh, My big, bold idea is that we need to rethink ways in which we engage boards with fundraising and how we talk about fundraising with boards. And I'm not suggesting that we ask boards to do more fundraising, to do more asks um, and execute more solicitations. I'm actually suggesting that boards should execute less direct fundraising activities. I think we need to spend more time working with boards to have them be key ambassadors, key thankers, really agents of an organization who can cultivate and engage current and prospective uh, donors. I have seen, and I'm sure you have seen, Jason, that um, every so many organizations struggle with how to get their board to do fundraising, right? And we talk about time, talent, treasure, and we work with boards to leverage their networks and we offer solicitation training. And I have been doing this long enough and I know you have as well to know that the result of that process is pretty minimal. That on a regular basis, I would suspect that most boards are not executing asks. You might have a couple of star board members who, who will make asks and who maybe take the same names year after year, but that we need to think differently about how boards can engage in fundraising and recognize that there are a set of activities that they can do and engage with that are actually, I think, going to be even more impactful than having board members solicit gifts. Yeah. So I don't know how long you've been around, but I've been around, you know, if anybody who's been around for about two decades, like I have or longer, um, we all started our fundraising career hearing from the, what I call the fundraising wizards, um, the the notion of give, give, get, or get off that sort of thing was, I mean, I remember being in 
you know, like seminars, right? I mean, that was like taught. You'd go to a, you'd go to a AFP conference or a, you know, nonprofit management conference. And there was this, there was all this hype about what we should expect of our boards. And what I think we're constant, what I, what I think I'm consistently hearing now, we honestly haven't talked about this, Stephanie, here on the podcast a whole lot about boards in particular, which is why, which is why this is a particularly, this is a great conversation to have. Um, kind of like one of the things I say, I say, I, I think we need to be letting, I think we need to start letting boards off the hook. I mean, does that, is that kind of the direction you're talking about going? So yes and no. I think we need to let board members off the hook in terms of making direct asks and direct solicitations. But I yeah, think okay. rather than letting them off the hook, we actually need to ramp up their broader engagement in fundraising activity. Yeah. And I, we can t- you know, talk about some specifics and I, I sketched out a couple of thoughts, but I think we've seen, I've been doing this, you know, 19 years. It just doesn't, it just doesn't work that the old work. model, <laughs> you know, and I come from my background. Um, my early experience was fundraising in the Jewish community and the Jewish community is phenomenal in terms of organizing solicitations and the model of sitting in a room and handing out cards, you know, people take the cards and make the calls, but that is, that was, that's going out of vogue and it's, it's not happening as much. And I, I rarely see that outside of the Jewish community and we just don't, get the kind of participation we want in terms of board members soliciting either other board members or other donors or prospects for gifts. So like, why are we continuing to bang our heads against the wall? Let's do something else that's more impactful and effective. Yeah, I think there was a conversation. So you and I have a very similar timeline. So we've both been in this for about 20 years. And it seemed like there was a conversation that started to happen about 10 years ago. I, st- I remember sort of this, this sort of the simmering, uh, this would, um, this idea that as the fundraising because prof- this is all relative to fundraising that we're talking about as the fundraising profession matures itself. So the idea that, that we have experts in the room, the idea that we have credentialed fundraisers, the idea that, that, that we're expected to know what we're doing, right? was also going to be the degree to which we, like like I say, let them off the hook. It was a recognition that you can't constantly be pointing the finger at the board to do things that you're saying you know how to do well. Does that make sense? It does. That's an interesting point. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It was like, it was like fundraisers. I remember, I don't remember, I don't remember where the conversation was, but it was like, it was like, I, I I even think I heard board members expressing this in in various different ways. The idea that you would hire a fundraiser, and then and then the fundraiser would come in, and they'd start pointing the finger at all these things that the board should have to do, and and I don't know if that flies anymore. I don't know if boards or executives would even like tolerate that anymore. Am I right? I think you are right. That's actually a very logical. Uh, argument that I I hadn't thought of before, but it jives nicely with my big bold thought, which yeah. is what we actually want board members to do are things that staff can do, but board yes. members are better at it, and it's yes. better results. Right? Yes. We want yes. board members to really engage in thanking donors. 
a thank yeah. you that comes from a board member, and we can you know obviously get into the nitty gritty of this, is different than a thank you that comes from a staff member. Yeah. Real engagement, talking with people who have been a member of or a donor of an organization, you know, for 10 years, but who've really never had any, you know, real engagement with staff. Like the conversation with a board member is different than a conversation with a staff member. There's, I think, a level of connection that a donor can form with a board member that is different than the kind of relationship they can form with a staff member. When we think about engagement, particularly as activities pick up as we're coming out of the you know, darkest period of, of COVID and there are more in-person activities p- taking place, going to an event with a board member, going to a theater production and sitting with a board member is a different experience than sitting with a staff member and enjoying a show. So I, I think, yes, to your point, um, it's not as effective and you you are spot on that we should really just from an organizational standpoint, think about who does what, who has what skill set, who does what well, and align our priorities in that way. Yeah, yeah. We have a consulting model at Responsive. We call it our three lanes. And mm-hmm. and we generally want our board members to be playing meaningful roles in yes. the two outer lanes. So the the what we call lane one or lane three. And we want our fundraising professionals to really show up in that what we call the messy middle. And that messy yeah. middle is essentially what you're zeroing in on. It's the idea that because I think that's where fundraisers really are given the opportunity to shine. And I think that's probably what you and I were sort of would be, would have picked up on early in our career. Uh, You know, I think fundraisers as a collective, like the big narrative that we all sort of share, the big story that we sort of share are starting to realize that rather than having board members sitting at the coffee table, soliciting $50,000 gifts with major donors, that's really the place that we ought to be like really shining, really delivering on the work. And um, maybe, maybe, maybe the conversation that we're having, Stephanie, is really sort of the the idea that we're, 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 we're in many ways we're sort of taking the the burden of what that, what I call that messy middle off the responsibility of that of that board member. Am I right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. And I think a a talented, sophisticated fundraiser can figure out how to meaningfully engage a board member in that messy middle process, right? If someone has a great relationship with a, you know, prospective donor or longtime donor, and they want to solicit them for an increase, how nice to be a donor and, you know, go along with a really talented staff member to a meeting where the staff member is the lead, but the board member is there to, to add to the conversation and help to build a relationship with, with the donor or the prospect. Um, Yes, I definitely think that the role, like the staff role is very clear in that middle lane. And that that does take a skill set and an experience level that likely board members don't have because they probably have not, you know, worked in fundraising at, at an organization in the past. Stephanie, how much have you thought about this through the context of, uh, again, you and I have had a very similar career timeline. So you you remember when we first got into fundraising, I guess I and I haven't been to a I haven't been in a workshop of this sort. Maybe they're still having them, but it was all this generational, you know, it was the it was one generation to another and you know the 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 dynamics that are sort of sitting on b- boards today 
I never worked for a board that wasn't like chock full of baby boomers, right? I never worked for a board that wasn't just basically that sort of cohort. That was just, that just happened to have been my employers. But that our generation, Gen X, that's sort of coming behind them, there's just not as many of us. And I wonder if some of that is sort of intertwined in what you're thinking, because I don't know if boards for, say, the next, say, couple of decades until the millennials really sort of mature and start sort of taking over the world like we expect them to. I don't know if uh, I don't know if our generations really I don't know if there's enough of us to sit on these boards and really deliver on expectations that are perhaps unreasonable. Does that make sense? It does. I mean, I think our generation, and I'm in that sort of weird, like three year period before millennial and X. Yeah, me too. Right? I, don't yeah, know we're that, both. I don't know what that's called. But. Yeah, we're right on the edge, I mean, right? We can either think, be right, very, yeah, yeah. We, we're either very, very old millennials or very young Gen Xers. Yes. 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 <laughs> I, you know, I feel I have a, you know, young child. I think many of us have family, young family commitments and also have, um, as in my case, aging parents and feel that, you know, sandwiching effect. And I think for a number of people in our age group that serving on a board right now is prop is may not be their top priority. I think people are building wealth and they're happy to contribute and be asked to contribute. But at least in my own social social circle, particularly in DC, people are, you know, strapped and tired and, and are really not serving on boards in great numbers. And then when you think about millennials and Gen Z, I think that comes next, right? They are engaged and want to get their hands dirty and, and do things. And I think that certainly this, this model of, you know, relying on boards to solicit and execute a significant number of asks is, is probably not going to work with them. I think they want more hands-on uh, engagement. Hey, um, there's a lot of conversations about like what expectations we should have uh, for the board. There's a lot of conversations in the fundraising community that is not specific to fundraising. Um, but I also remember, I remember some insight wisdom that was given to me and I considered it wisdom and maybe different, but it was the idea that we should first and foremost treat our board members like major donors and not like any myriad of other roles. Um, they're not employees. Um, they're not, you know, oftentimes they hail from the marketplace or, or something. They're not, you know, they're not trained up in the nonprofit sector necessarily some of them might and um and that maybe if you just treated them like 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 this gentleman said to me just treat them like you would a you know a really good donor you might actually sort of get that relationship off on the right foot what do you think about that i do agree with that i think it's it's actually a really a board member it's a really special relationship it yeah. it should be yes i think you should really treat everybody as a major donor. Now, obviously there are time constraints and whatnot, right? But you should treat everybody as a respected investor in your organization. And I think board members have the added, um, re- they have their added responsibilities. And so I, I think there needs to be a layer of respect and appreciation for what they bring to the table because every board member brings something. It might not be what you want or what you, you know, initially set out for, but People bring their own perspectives, talents, 
ideas. And yes, it's a lot of work to manage all of that and make people feel included and connected. But I think by spending individual time with board members, engaging people outside of board meetings, um, they will feel like major donors and, and even more so. I think they will feel like respected and valued partners. So where are you seeing organizations? So you work with clients. So where are you seeing sort of the opposite? Like, where are you seeing the good, bad, and the ugly? Where are you seeing organizations like, and we won't name any names, but where are you seeing organizations that are still sort of really struggling with this? And where are you seeing organizations that have really got this right? So I'm seeing a number of organizations that I think generally get this concept and accept this concept and are struggling yeah. a little and want to move in this direction but are struggling a little bit with the actual implementation, right? There's something about the solicitation process whereby if board members are involved, you send them information and they can execute it. This type of engagement takes more work and more time and needs to be thought out in a way that I think, you know, the solicitation card model doesn't. So I actually was just on a, a client call earlier with a, with a, an advancement committee of a board. And we talked about the mechanics of this. And so first thinking about what, like, how will we actually do this? What is the population within the organization that we want board members to engage with? And so therefore we need to run data and look at, look at lists and figure out who are the right people and why are they the right people? So I think some organizations are in that sort of middle spot where they have a sense of how they could better engage board members, but are thinking about tactically, how do they actually do that? You know, it's interesting the way you started that, that comment, because I immediately thought Stephanie's describing that transactional. So if there's anything that if I think through in between the lines of every, you know, with 300 plus conversations that we've had here, if I think of, I think of anything that fundraisers complain about, it's just that consistent sort of transactional way in which these relationships play out. And what you made me think, I was like, yeah, that's exactly what, like that card you were describing. Cause I, I, like when we, when we employ, when we employ, when we enlist our board members to do whatever we do, if, if we enlist them to do things that are just so damn transactional, um, it just ends up creating the same experience for them that it oftentimes creates that, that fundraising in general oftentimes creates for us that oftentimes leaves us disappointed and feeling betrayed by what it is we're doing. Am I right? Yes. And I think that what you just said, Jason, apply, it, it can apply to both board members and staff members. So this yeah. call that I had uh, earlier, we talked about the Institutional Advancement Committee looking at a list of donors who are giving $1,000 or more to the organization, but no one really knew, knows who them are, who they are. And there are yeah. a fair number of them, like over a hundred. There, there's there's a good chunk, and so we'll spend the time to figure out who on the board um, is going to contact them, what they're going to actually talk about, you know, prepping some you know, talking points and prompts so they feel equipped to have a conversation. But it strikes me that a staff member could do the same thing, and that it feels less um, robotic and and repetitive if right. you know your task for a particular week is okay I'm going to engage 10 donors in conversation who I don't know well I have five different prompts I can 
I can share with them to, to get them talking. And I have no agenda with the call or the meeting other than getting to know them better and bringing them closer to the organization. Like that's, I, I love the like creativity and freedom of that. At the same time, that is such meaningful development work. And you're saying, okay, let me make sure I follow this because I like where you're going, but I want to make sure I, I, I'm following the advice because um, I think I've given some similar advice and we have a we have a deliberate practice with some of our clients that we use with our clients that maybe goes along the same line. But you're talking about enlisting board members to have meaningful conversations, a, you know, separate outside beyond before the solicitation and you're sort of affording the messy ambiguity, uncertainty, unpredictableness, you know, that comes with, I mean, not unlike the conversation we're having here, we need to afford board members the opportunity to have conversations with our donors um, that don't involve an ask. Is that Correct. what I mean? Or, yes. or that are not hinged on an ask. So even, even in some cases, it's the, even the thank you call, I, I suspect even the thank you call can feel just as quote unquote automated or robotic. Yes. Because yes. they're not really calling. They're not, it's just on either side of that you know, thousand dollar check. Yes. Although I think you can spend the time to make those thank you calls more um, meaningful for both the board member and the donor. And I think you can also make them less uncomfortable. I'm actually prepping some, some materials for that for a client now. And I look at the gift as that's the trigger for the meaningful relationship building. So the call, yes, it's to say thank you, but that's really the first, you know, 30 seconds. And then the rest of the call, however long the donor is is willing to spend, is a more exploratory conversation about why they're involved with this organization. What issues keep them up at night? You know, what are they hoping the organization might do in the future to address, you know, concerns they have on a particular issue, that kind of thing. Usually at about 25 minutes in, we sort of, sometimes we'd sort of take yes, a divert. Yeah, we sort of take yes. a turn in the conversation and I'm kind of wondering, so all of our listeners or the large majority of our listeners are fundraisers. And I'm kind of reminded of some theory that I read at the beginning of my career that has to do with, um, that actually emerged from like the PR and marketing world. And it's the idea that, um, I, uh, it's it's sort of the it's the identity or sort of the role that the fundraiser plays, right? And 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 in some of this theory that we've we've adopted in the fundraising space, we've we've sort of borrowed from the PR world or the marketing world. And and it's different and it's it, the two distinctions that I remember picking up on was more of an active role in the solicitation process versus a facilitative role, which was to say you would be facilitating a lot of these other solicitors. And I kind of wonder, Stephanie, if that's some of what we're talking about. Our fundraisers, I remember a, I remember a Boy Scout, a, a leader, a boy, a leader of a, a, a fundraiser for the Boy Scouts once interviewed with some of my clients, and he had no experience soliciting gifts, but he had lots of experience fa facilitating other solicitors. And my and my my client was not interested in this particular candidate. And when I explained to him later, 
he didn't understand that. It was like mind boggling. And I said, they want somebody who actually knows how to do the solicitation and not facilitate other solicitors. So I'm wondering, Stephanie, are we, are we sort of talking about this evolution or this better, maybe this clarity of role that the fundraiser starting to have in that we're seeing ourselves as the active solicitor and not facilitating a bunch of other volunteer solicitors? It's a good question. I mean, in my background as a staff member, I have been the, it has been clear that I am the active. Right, right. Likewise, yes. Right. And the, and, you know, and I know you, Jason, have talked a lot about um, metrics and goals, right? And so that whole moves management and that entire process is built around the staff member as the solicitor at the core. But I, and I think it, I think it can evolve. I, I love a, a, dual solicitation with a staff member and a board member. Mm-hmm. And I think that situations are unique and some board members are comfortable soliciting or are comfortable talking about money, but then want a staff member to make the actual dollar amount ask. And I think that process of working with a board member to figure out what feels comfortable to them and what they think will work best with the donor or prospect is actually such an important relationship building opportunity between the staff and the volunteer solicitor and yields a better outcome with the with the person they are soliciting. Have you found have you found a sort of a rule of thumb? I, I seem to think that I uh picked this up with my last employer and then I've subsequently figured it out with with um with some of my clients that you know on a board of 10 to 12 You've got two or three really great talented solicitors who actively yeah. want to do that, and that's what that's kind of where I go back to that that language of letting the rest of them off the hook. It's kind of like if you major on the idea of trying to turn everyone into a, a an active fundraiser, an active solicitor, you're going to miss the opportunity of engaging those three or four, those two or three that could really be rock stars and really actually help you get some things done. I think that's exactly right. There's yeah. always a subset. I, I sometimes think it's, you know, 25, maximum 30%. Yeah, yeah. Board. And yes, right? Leverage people's skills and talents and engage them in the way in which they want to be engaged. And then sort of set that aside and think about, okay, you know, I have these other eight people and I need to figure out how to strategically yeah. and meaningfully engage them. And it's probably not going to be by asking them to call Jason Lewis and Stephanie Schwartz right. to ask them for right. money. So, okay, yes, exactly. Move that aside. You know, what? It, it, have you also seen, now we're kind of just reflecting on our experiences here. Have you also seen that, that, so imagine that, that, that gentleman or that woman um, in that role, those great solicitors, I think they oftentimes get bogged down with like the, the fundraising committees too. Sometimes those are the wrong people to think don't put that that person as the chair of your your you know your advancement yeah. committee your fundraising committee because they're they're going to get bogged down in in what I call lane one fundraising the administration of your direct mail you know contracts or something um you want that person willingly going out on calls with your fundraiser and with your president and stuff yeah i just wrapped up some work with an independent school here in dc where the chair of the advancement committee is a phenomenal solicitor and fundraiser and wants to go out and ask people for money, but sure. really got bogged down in the yes. in the work of the committee to the point where I said to him, look, 
show your face on the committee meetings. They're all virtual. Just, you know, put yourself on mute and do some other work and then focus your real energy on going out and, and soliciting. Yeah, I totally, yes. I, I, I think that's, um, again, this, this is hearkening to our, to our logic with the three lanes. I think lane one creates a lot of, uh, it, it, you know, fun, administrative committee type work, whereas lane two is oftentimes that messy middle. And even in your campaign mode in lane three tends to be those places where you can really benefit from somebody like you're describing. But those folks get frustrated by, um, it's just like it's no different than a major gifts officer type, which I, you know, it, it's 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 just you're talking about different types of skills and talents and stuff as it relates to our, you know, our side of the exchange. Exactly. Exactly. And I think it goes back to our the original point we were discussing. Meet people where they are, leverage their skills and talents. Yes, it takes more time to do that individually than, you know, the metaphor of handing cards out in a room but you get a better result at the end of the day. So if you can, you know, wade through the murkiness until you get to the points of clarity with the board members and what they can do, what they bring to the table and then enabling them to do it, you get a better result. And are we going this is to wrap this conversation is are we sort of losing that I think at the beginning of my career there was a lot of that having these sort of um systems and processes in place, kind of like the cards where you'd literally sort of, it was very prescriptive, right? It was always very formulaic. It was, wasn't very human centered. It was sort of just assumed that, that everybody sort of met the expect, but, but I don't think that's working in any context, whether talking about volunteers, employees, leaders, you know, it doesn't really matter who we're talking about. Some of those formulas that we were all taught early in our careers and I'm sure I'm sure other people in other domains are seeing the same thing. You ju- you just can't hand out cards and tell everybody to do the same thing anymore. Correct. And I think we would be foolish to do that when we know it doesn't work. So right. Why do we continue to do the same thing and expect a different result? Yeah, yeah, totally. I I I think that's where we're. Uh, I think that's where we're at. So, Stephanie, this has been a en- very engaging conversation. I, I'd love to have you back sometime. You can be my. Uh, you can be my. You my go to uh, board member conversation if you'd like to. I'd love that. Um, yeah, I'd, I'd really enjoy that, Stephanie. I always ask uh, because you are in a consulting role. And, uh, and I know you work with clients. And so one of the things I always like to ask before we wrap up, sort of a two-part converse, a two-part question, um, who is that organization you want to hear from? And then, uh, and then the second half of that question is, is, is how do they find you? Where do they, where do they, where do they go to, uh, to get in touch with you? Sure. I love to work with organizations that have some kind of fundraising activity going on. So it could be a small organization with, you know, one and a half, two people. It could be a mid-sized organization with a team, but an organization that knows that it can raise more money, but isn't sure how to do it. I love to put that, the you know, puzzle pieces in place to figure out how to take an organization from A to B to meet their fundraising goals. And I also love on the flip side, organizations that have development operations that are going but there are problems and they need to make changes and they don't know how to do that. I love to problem solve and yeah. you know take the pieces apart and then help organizations put them back together. Um, people can find me via my website, which is littlebeangroup.com. 
Stephanie, this has certainly been a pleasure. I uh, I really uh, you stuck with me and you let me give you. We kind of went back and forth. This was a great conversation. You're thank always you so welcome. much, Jason. You're you are like a real star in our field, so I'm so happy to get to spend time with you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Have you read the book that nonprofit leaders and fundraising professionals alike are calling a must read? In this pocket manifesto for today's fundraising professional, Jason deconstructs why many of us find ourselves working for organizations where we cannot accomplish our goals. These same organizations are notorious for rapid turnover and high donor attrition. To avoid this all too familiar path, Jason offers direction from those who want to be recognized and admired for their work. The war for fundraising talent challenges our ingrained beliefs and assumptions about how effective fundraising really works, and it questions the prevailing wisdom hiring decisions and donor behavior. Published by Gatekeepers Press, The War for Fundraising Talent is now available on Amazon and other major retailers. We want to thank you for listening to today's episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show and hope you will come back for next week's interview, where we will discuss with those on the front line who are defining what it means to be a fundraising professional. If you'd like to be a guest on the Fundraising Talent Podcast, visit our Facebook page or email Jason at jason at lewisfundraising.com. In your email, be sure to tell us about where you work and why you believe you would be a great addition to the upcoming lineup. Thank you again for joining us today, and we look forward to you being a part of the continuing conversation as we shape how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent.